Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, it's just me and Helen Thompson. Helen is back. And we're going to be talking about what the last four years of Donald Trump in the White House has meant for us. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Helen, I was looking and it doesn't exactly map, but it nearly does. Talking politics, since we started it, pretty much coincides with the Trump years. So we started in September 2016, a couple of months, just a bit more than a couple of months before he won. But we were already talking about him a lot. And then we've been talking about him a lot ever since, like the rest of the world. I don't know how you feel about it. And there are various ways we could approach this. But one thing I was thinking of is to take a step back and ask you a big sort of historical perspective question because I've heard a couple of people say in different contexts that 2020 will turn out to be the year that the 21st century really started because of COVID essentially just happens to coincide with the presidential election but that's not the issue and that historians are likely to look back on the 21st century a bit like Eric Hobsbawm does on the 20th as a short century if it starts in 2020 who knows where it'll end maybe it'll be a long century because it'll run into the 22nd century but Eric Hobsbawm famously said that the 20th century was a short century that ran more or less from 1914 to 1989 so this is a long-winded way of saying if 2020 is the start of the 21st century because of covid then Trump belongs to that interregnum period between the end of the short 20th century and now, sort of 1990 to 2020, those 30 years. The four years of the Trump presidency are in that period. And that cuts against, I think, how most people feel about Trump, that he represents some huge break and that you know something extraordinary and unprecedented happened in 2016 and suddenly we entered Trump world and everything changed. Do you think it's possible that with a bit of hindsight, Trump looks more like part of that in-between period, and he has more in common with what went before than what's about to come now. I mean, I think, first of all, this is an incredibly difficult question to think about because you have to have a view really on the 20th century and whether something like the Hosborne thesis is right in ending the 20th century in 1989 to make there be an interlude of which Trump is then a part before the pandemic comes along and maybe we can get back to that. There's certainly something in the argument that at least in geopolitical terms, because I think the question of the American Republic itself is a bit different. Trump belongs to a continuum that began before he entered the presidency. And I would say well before he entered the presidency, you could argue that it began with the American failure in Iraq Or I think you could argue that it began in the early 2010s with resurgent American energy power and the way in which 
America simultaneously ended up in that decade, the decade that we've just finished living through with more power, which came from the fact that it was now a major oil producer again and the financial power that the 2008 crash gave it and less military power that was any use to it in the Middle East where its policy sort of descended into one disaster after another. Obviously that began in Iraq, but it certainly continued through the decade that we've just lived through. And so I think that you can certainly make a case that says that there are you know, some quite strong continuities between the Obama years and the Trump years where the Middle East concerned. You can say that, look, you've had two successive American presidents that basically tried and largely failed to take the United States out of the, the Middle East. I think the point where you have to have something that's a bit different about Trump is in relation to China and in relation to Iran. Because if you'd had continuity Obama after 2016 via Hillary Clinton, the style I think would have been somewhat different. I don't think we would have seen those changes that took place. So then in part, I suppose the question becomes, well, how do we understand the pandemic? Is the pandemic a a fundamental watershed in which we're now going to live in a, you know, like a radically different world. That's what it seems like at the moment. But it may be that the pandemic is simply not the last. I'm sure it won't be the last, but the next in a succession of crises that we can understand as having begun some point in the 21st century. Anyway, of which the 2008 crash would obviously be the obvious example, but it's perhaps not the only example. And I should say that obviously we're recording this before the election. I'm not assuming that Trump is only going to be a one-term president. I mean, the odds point that way, but absolutely nothing being taken for granted here. So it could be that his presidency then straddles the period between the interlude and the start of the 21st century on this thesis. When I was thinking about it, there are a few ways that you might make 2020 a kind of watershed. So on the pandemic one, and in relation to what you said about China, it must at least be possible, and I think people are already making this assumption, it may be premature, that 2020 will look like a symbolic year in the Chinese century, essentially a pandemic that began in China, that will have done great damage to US-Chinese relations in various ways. But then over the course of 2020, we see the very different trajectories of the disease in these two, the two rival superpowers, essentially. And that if what we get through the next decades is a clear shift in the balance of global power from the United States, to China, then 2020 will look like a break point, but the first term and maybe the only term of a Trump presidency comes before that. And we could be in a very different US-China world in which it is at least possible, though Trump marks a break from the Obama years, there is that kind of American power and its early decline, and then the symbolic break to the point where the shift has clearly happened. Do you think that's, that's possible? I definitely think it's possible that the pandemic in retrospect will be seen as a a significant watershed in the US-China rivalry. I think my difficulty with this thesis is that I think that it assumes that American power and the trajectory of American power is uniform. And that's where I think I part company because it seems to me that what you could say about American power in the first decade of the 21st century is really rather different than what you would have to say about it at the end of the second decade of the 21st century. So as I say, if we leave the question of military power in the Middle East aside, then I think that the United States over the past decade has had more power 
than it had in the 21st century. And there is nothing in the dynamics that we've seen in play in the pandemic that changes the fact, although it certainly complicates the facts, that the United States has a strong domestic energy supply again. And it certainly doesn't change anything to do with the fact that the Federal Reserve Board is an international lender of last resort. Indeed, one of the consequences of the financial aspects of the pandemic back in March was that effectively the Federal Reserve extended an indirect dollar credit line in principle to China, which allowed some protection for China's dollar debt through the essentially world economic crisis that we've lived through through the last six months or so. So although there is undoubtedly a story to tell about rising Chinese power, it's not straightforwardly at American expense. Now, you could argue that this is the point where we have to bring the domestic politics of the United States back into it or into it, and that the sheer domestic political turmoil that the United States has been through over the last four years and more is going to be consequential to the way in which the American-Chinese strategic competition plays itself out, and that a United States that becomes incredibly internally divided, even more so in some senses than it already is, is going to be consequential. So like you, I'm, I'm not totally sold on this thesis that everything changes in 2020, but I want to give you a couple more ways that it might run. And then we're going to get on to what Trump himself maybe means to us or how we've thought about him over the last four years. So two possibilities here when I was thinking about this. I think it's almost inevitable at some point there is going to be a shift in the politics of climate change and it is going to become the central question of democratic politics, including in countries like the United States. And it could happen after 2020. It could a Biden presidency, we don't know, but a Biden presidency might make climate change absolutely central to its own fortunes. But at some point that will happen. Some president, some political event will make climate change the issue. And when that does happen, what comes before will be part of a continuity. So say it does happen in 2020. I'm only speculating here, but say Biden wins, say the Democrats win across the board, and we get a shift in the politics of climate change. Then Trump belongs to that period when people didn't do much about climate change. Obviously, there's a huge contrast between the Obama years and the Trump years in relation to the Paris Accords and so on. But relatively speaking, I think compared to the inevitable period where government action, there is a step change around this. Trump and the Trump years, if they are only four, will look like part of the not doing anything years relative to the doing something years. Do you buy that? There's definitely something in this thesis. And I think that what has happened over the the last six months, so before we even get to the outcome of the American election, has been consequential here because there clearly has been a change in rhetoric that's come out of China over the last few months where climate change is concerned. And Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, saying that China will be carbon neutral by 2060. Whether that is at all what he actually means is, of course, another matter. But the fact that he said it is, I think, a pretty significant moment. So in that sense, you might say, if Biden were to be president, then what you would expect is that there will be a significant shift to significant multilateral cooperation between Europe, the Asian countries led by China in this respect, and the United States over climate change. Now, whether that will yield 
really radically different policies, at least in the short to medium term, than the ones we've seen so far outside the United States. I think that might be open to question. But it certainly would mean, I think, that we would be moving beyond the period of multilateral cooperation about climate change that the Paris Accords represented into something that was more serious. And I think that if you look at the position of the Democratic Party in the United States in relation to climate now compared to what it was in 2015, and indeed in the lead up to 2015, when Obama was reaching the preliminary agreement with Xi Jinping that was necessary for the Paris Climate Conference to take place, the Democratic Party in the United States is clearly taking climate much more seriously than it did back in years 2013 to 2015. I still think you have to add some complicating factors to this on the United States side. And this is where we come back to the fact that over the course of the last decade, the United States became a very significant energy producer itself again. So any change in climate policy is going to have to have a reckoning with the shale, oil and gas industry. And you can see already in the things that Biden has really retreated in position from, so to speak, from the positions that he ended up taking in the primaries, where he was being challenged from the left to take a much more radical anti-shale position, that he realises that this is a vulnerability, particularly when the road to the White House probably runs through Pennsylvania, where there are significant numbers of jobs in the shale sector. So I don't think that this is going to be a straightforward move for a Biden presidency to make at all. But I do think that if we end up with with Joe Biden as president and we go back to a multilateral approach or a relatively multilateral approach anyway to climate change in a set of circumstances in which China's position has now at least rhetorically moved, then that is an important and long-term significant moment. And this one, I think, absolutely is contingent on the result of the election because if Trump does win again, I think it's almost certain he'll need to win Pennsylvania among other states. I think it's almost certain that, again, with hindsight, it will appear that the arguments around fracking and energy were decisive, I suspect. I mean, who knows? You never know in an election what was decisive, and political scientists never in the end agree. But it seems likely that eight years of Trump will, by implication, mean that Trump's closing argument on this question hit home. And we don't know. We'll know that next week. So one more different one, which actually cuts against that, so it's more domestic and doesn't hang so much on the result of this election because it's already happened, it's happened this week. So Amy Barrett is now on the United States Supreme Court. And so the court is 6-3, broadly speaking, conservative. And we touched on this issue in our conversation with Gary and then when I was talking to Sarah Churchwell, the, the possibility that these are the Mitch McConnell years more than they are the Trump years. We don't know in his heart of hearts what McConnell wants to happen next week, but he has at least got the thing that he wanted on the court. And, you know, it's the cliche of the moment that that has set a trajectory, at least for judicial politics in the United States, possibly for a generation. And then, of course, if Biden wins, and he decides to counter that by expanding the court or seeking some bipartisan consensus to change its very constitution, which will be hard to achieve, we'll be in a totally different ballgame. But if, say, where we are this week, the Republican Party got the thing it wanted out of a Trump presidency, which is the reshaping of the Supreme Court. And three new justices in a four-year period is pretty remarkable. And they, you know, though they aren't 
super Trumpish justices, it's definitely changed its character. If that's the case, then 2020 again this week is a kind of watershed and we could have possibly even decades of a reshaping of aspects of American politics. And this is the theme that Gary and Sarah both picked up. There's a Mitch McConnell agenda here, which isn't the Trump agenda, but could be furthered by this Supreme Court. And in that case, 2020 is a is another watershed year and you get pre-Barrett and post-Barrett rather than Trump being the, the decisive figure in this. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously that what's happened with the court is very significant. And that, as you say, is pretty unusual for a one-term president to end up being able to make three nominations and indeed then getting all those through confirmation because obviously it required a, a Republican Senate in order for this to happen. The reason why I'm a bit hesitant about seeing it as a, such a watershed, I think it, it's twofold, is first of all is that, as we know from the conservative justices or those who have been perceived as conservative justices who've been appointed to the court, some of them do things that are not very, shall we say, appreciated by the conservative enthusiasts for these appointments. So simply to try to treat the court in a partisan way of, say, just line up the conservative justices versus the liberal justices and then outcomes ensue, that hasn't really been the history of the court. Indeed, you could argue it's not been the history of the court you know, right back to the 1980s. Reagan was similarly, but obviously over a two-term presidency, was able to nominate quite a few justices to the court. There was quite a long, a strong sense then in which the court had been moved in a decisively conservative direction, and that's not what turned out to be the case. I think the second caveat I would put is that what we're seeing is the fact of the way since, I would say, at least since the 1970s, probably beginning with the Roe versus Wade decision, but you could make the argument that it went back to the school prayer decision back in the early 1960s, that these contests of the court, around the court, who's on the court, what decisions the court makes have become absolutely central to American democratic politics. American politics became judicialized in this sense. And I'm not sure it becomes such a watershed moment if it turns out the court has now decisively moved in a conservative direction than when it was when the court appeared decisively, but in the end not quite decisively, to move in a, in a liberal direction back in the 1960s and the 1970s. I think the crucial point is the intense politicisation of these judicial decisions, the fact that almost everything can now be expected in domestic politics to end back up in the Supreme Court and what then the consequences of that are for the American Republic in terms of the way that it deals with policy questions, but also in terms of its ability to hold itself together as you have such a strong source of polarisation now built into constitutional politics itself. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So all of these things then, I think, get us back to what I think most people would think was the 
obvious flaw with the 2020 marks uh, year zero for the 21st century and Trump just folds back into the Obama years, which fold back into the Bush years, back into the Clinton years and so on. No one who's lived through the past four years, never mind people like us who've tried to comment on it, can feel that the last four years are somehow just part of a continuum with what went before because something about it clearly was different. I mean, just the feel of it, the experience of it, the all-consuming nature of the Trump years as a political phenomenon, the way in which, I mean, there were so many versions of this story, but there's a version in one of these latest books about Trump that when he was asked after he won the presidency, but before he'd assumed office, what was he in this for? He said it was to be the most famous man in the world. And I think there's now a case for saying he's the most famous human being in the history of the human species. His name recognition is off the charts. And that's done something to our collective consciousness. It's done something to the world's collective consciousness. You and I have grappled with this for the past four years. We've just tried to do a version of it, which is to be a bit distant, to be analytical. I mean, I've deliberately set this up, that way of framing it as an opportunity for us to talk about. Maybe there's nothing that different about Trump when you look at some of the big themes we've always been interested in on this podcast, energy and so on, geopolitics. We haven't talked about technology, but that also could factor into this. And yet, I know, I think you know, that that would be a bit of an illusion because there's something about the Trump years that have made analytical discussions of broad, long-term historical political themes really difficult. I mean, I found it difficult. And in the sort of feedback that we get, it's, it's very hard to land on that spot where we are treating Trump dispassionately and analytically without it sounding a bit ridiculous. That's what I've found. I've never been totally sure we've ever got there either. It has been pretty difficult. And I think that you know, there are several aspects to that. I and mean, one of them is that for you and I, that we're not American citizens. So we're talking and trying to analyse another country's politics. And we're doing so from point which whatever we personally feel about Trump and whatever revulsion that there may be, it's not of the same immediate consequence. I'm not trying to suggest that John Trump doesn't have consequences for the whole of the world. Of course, he has done. But I do think it's a different experience when you're a citizen of the country to which this presidency was happening. And just on that, because I also have that thought very strongly, I'm often self-conscious about that when we discuss him. I mean, we should say we're not, I mean, you probably are, I'm not, but we're not experts who are just interested but the other thing that has coincided with the four-year history of this podcast is we've spent more time talking about Brexit than we have about Trump. And Brexit has an immediacy for us. And actually, you and I have found it in some ways easier to maintain the analytical distance around Brexit, though it's been challenging too. But I was particularly struck what you and I have, over the past couple of years, regularly appeared on the 538 podcast to talk about Brexit as sort of the Brexit correspondence every now and then. And we are questioned about it from an outside perspective, from an American perspective. And I've always really been struck by what a distinctive experience that is, because the questions are really good questions. They're very you know, serious questions, but they never quite had the, the heat of when we did it in a UK context. They had that, for me, very attractive distance, slight puzzlement, slight bafflement. It's like, is this for real? Are you guys really doing this? And presumably, that's exactly how it is the other way around. I don't know. In some ways, I valued it. I valued the outside perspective. But it also always just found, sounded a little bit detached. It is just a different level of 
I guess, both political responsibility and moral responsibility that one has in relation to the politics of the country for which one is a citizen. And maybe at times that is distorting of one's ability to do analysis, and maybe at times it's a illuminating, but it does put us in a different position trying to have things to say that might be at all insightful about the United States than it does about Britain. Do you think there's anything about Trump that kind of defies analysis? I think we both share the view that particularly at a time of very divisive and partisan politics, there's some value in trying to take a step back. And also, we, I think we both share that desire to take a historical view where possible, both looking back and looking forward, and not just our friend John Norton, who calls it the sociology of the last five minutes. And there's quite a lot of that around contemporary politics. But there are aspects of Trump that make that really hard, I mean, just almost impossible sometimes to just do that thing of creating the necessary distance to be analytical. And this is, as you say, not even being citizens of the country that elected him. I think one of the difficulties has been that as soon as you start trying to stand back from it, and you're standing back from a man who has a very singular and very crude, boorish personality, who invokes huge depths of revulsion in many, many Americans, And you stand back and try and look at it historically and say, well, what is it that fits about this in relation to the past? How did it come out of the past? What might it be its implications for the the future? Then it can seem, regardless of what one's intention is, that one's slipping into moral indifference in relation to the Trump presidency. And, And that is, I think, something that we've both struggled with at times. The other problem, though, is that there's been such a mega narrative created around Trump as a singular evil in relation to the American Republic that trying to step back and say actually that it has to be more complicated than that means that you are putting yourself in disagreement with things that is incredibly important to many people because this is the lens with which they've not only seen the last few years, this is the lens through which they've lived their daily lives through the last four years in that Trump has so saturated people's consciousness, that if you kind of stand back from it, then you're in some sense not showing any empathy for what it has been like, particularly for American citizens who are revolted by Trump, to live through this. Now, I think the danger of the Trump is the singular evil confronting the American Republic narrative is it means that you have to take a pretty distorted view of the American past. You have to take a pretty complacent attitude to what state the American Republic was in before Donald Trump was in many people's consciousness and you miss continuities. But the fact that not wanting to engage with those questions has become part of the starting place for so much discussion about the Trump presidency makes it very hard to break through that and say, actually, the differences might be overwhelming in style, but not so much in substance. And then there's the other side of that, which is the sort of issue of balance. I think on Brexit, we're not the BBC, we don't have to be balanced, we can do whatever we like. But on Brexit, you know, we've tried, especially because we're so sensitive to it, because it is our politics, and I think we understand it, to really make sure that we cover the range of things that Brexit has thrown up from a range of perspectives. And with Trump, it's always been really hard. So the other criticism that we've had is we haven't had enough defences of Donald Trump on our podcast. I don't think we're obliged to have people on our podcast who defend Donald Trump. But also there is something about Trumpian politics. We don't do confrontational, gotcha trying to catch people out conversations. We do real conversations in which we hope that the conversation will just evolve and flow. And I've never been clear in my own mind that it's possible to do that 
with someone who is defending Donald Trump. Maybe we just haven't found the right people. But I think there is a real challenge to cover the range of opinion around Trump and to do it in the style that we think that this podcast has always sought to achieve. It's been different for me than Brexit or even anything else. I mean, it's true we also haven't had and you know, everyone who discusses climate faces this challenge. We haven't tried to be balanced on climate either. We haven't really been balanced on technology. We've had no one come on to defend Facebook, and I wouldn't want that. I don't know how that conversation would go either. But Trump seems to me more like Facebook and climate change than he is like Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I think that nobody can doubt that Brexit was extraordinarily polarising in this country, but it still seems to me a somewhat different phenomenon in terms of the political reaction to it than the Trump presidency. One of the things that has made it difficult and gets to the difficulty of standing back from it is that one of the things that Trump has done is really to rip apart the distinction between the American president as head of state and as head of government. He seems absolutely incapable of understanding the distinction in his mind and knowing when he's supposed to act as the the head of state. So Trump seems, just by the way in which he talks, even the way in which he physically holds himself as president, the things that he does as such a, a violation of the ideal of the American Republic. Now, as we know, one of the other things that's happened during the course of the Trump presidency, indeed, obviously, it began before the Trump presidency, is a deep and often traumatic discussion of what the ideals of the American Republic can possibly mean when you start looking back at early American history. But that doesn't change the fact that that's how it psychologically feels to many people that Trump has violated something of the essence of America. So if you start then thinking, okay, well, who's going to come on and defend Trump? Once you're in that realm, then you're into a whole other space and thinking who might come on and say something that was constructive and explain reasons why Brexit might have happened. Finally, another way of thinking about this puzzle, what have the last four years been like to try and sort of comment on in real time? It's extraordinary the extent to which when you try and think back from election night so I remember election night very vividly in November 2016 and we recorded an episode the next morning but we also recorded little clips of us reacting in real time to Trump's victory our dear departed friend Aaron Rapport through that night gave us his take on it and I one of the things I loved about it was that even though it's his country as an American citizen he had that slight dispassionate feel I remember him ending by saying you know strap yourselves in it's going to be a bumpy ride as someone who was both horrified but also interested in what might come next but the rhythms of that night I can remember vividly I mean the, the range of emotions just in the space of four or five hours as one watched the results come in one watched you know political commentators but also political operatives see their whole lives turned upside down their expectations the rawness of the emotional experience of that night. And who knows, we may be about to go through something similar next week, or we may have a very different, much more sedate experience. Who knows? But just in a few hours, so much happened. And then over the past four years, there have been so many sort of news cycles. It's almost impossible to keep them in one's mind. Once you start thinking about what has Trump done in the last four years, it's this limitless range of either outrages or interventions or changing the story, changing the narrative, often on a daily basis, some days on an hourly basis. It's overwhelming. And I was struck by the contrast of thinking about that. So I'm about to get my copy, like a lot of people, in next month of Obama's memoirs. I've just started reading the first extract that's in the New Yorker about healthcare, how he got Obamacare through. Over the last few years, I've 
one of the things I've done as a kind of sideline is I write a lot about politicians' memoirs. I wrote about Cameron's memoirs. And Cameron's memoirs had this kind of odd feel, which is the Cameron years until Brexit seemed quite boring. I actually couldn't remember much of what had happened. When I tried to think about the news cycles, I thought, you know, it was just routine politics. And then when he described it, it was this absolute roller coaster in his mind. So from Cameron's perspective, the Cameron years were just this endless succession of crises and dramas and interventions daily, hourly. But that's not how it seemed from the outside. I suspect with Obama, there'll be something the same. The Obama years had, in retrospect, a kind of continuity to them. But I'm sure as he describes them, it'll be this roller coaster. Whereas Trump, it's almost the other way around. So the experience of it has been this roller coaster. And yet, when the, the books are written about what actually happened, what he got done, what he achieved, there may not be that much there. And that's the bit I find also, so this is against my original argument, you know, the Trump years are unique. I can't put any shape on them in my own mind. I can't, you know, are there phases to them? Was there the this bit of the Trump presidency followed by the that bit of the Trump presidency? It just seems like this constant drumbeat of stuff none of which maybe added up to much. Is there a shape to it? Yeah, I think there is a shape to it. And that I think that there's a period where basically it was unclear whether the Trump's presidency was going to survive for the whole term. And the fact that he wasn't able actually to hold together people who wanted to work for him, you know, in the first part of the Trump presidency for any length of time. And there was obviously a whole set of expectations that were built up for Trump's opponents and critics around the fact of him being impeached and what was going to happen with the the Mueller inquiry and that the Mueller inquiry was going to finish Trump off. I was always sceptical about that, but there's no doubt that that was an expectation that many people had and that it did give a shape, I think, to the domestic part of the Trump presidency. You can then say there was the phase between the end of the Mueller inquiry when it became clear that that wasn't going to be a path to impeachment and the attempted impeachment or the impeachment in the House of Representatives and then the acquittal in the Senate that did take place at the beginning of this year. So in between Mueller's end and before impeachment, where it looked like not only was Trump staying in office, but he had a pretty good chance of winning re-election. I think that if you look at the state of affairs at the beginning of this year, there were many people, including on the Democratic side, who really did fear that Trump was heading for re-election. And you say, well, why was that the case? The fundamental reason was the economy. There was that polling, as I recall, in the Rust Belt states in particular at the beginning of the year that when you ask people, say, in Michigan, do you think you're better off than you were four years ago? The people answering yes to that were in the 60% range. So I think that the pandemic then becomes a crucial juncture in the Trump presidency, assuming that he is going to lose, which, as you say, is far from a given. So we would have to tell a story of the Trump presidency that showed, I think, in retrospect, the ways in which his incompetence and his inability to deal with a, not just a national emergency, but a worldwide emergency, play that role of not just the head of government, but the head of state at a time of national crisis did lethal damage to his presidency. And if he does lose, I think that the pandemic will be a central part of the explanation of that. I think if you look, though, in terms of geopolitics, you can see that you know, the Trump presidency has made a significant difference, and it's particularly in relation to China. And this is the sense in which not only has he changed the course that American policy was on, where trade was concerned and technological competition, he's taken 
most of the American political class with him. He has created a new consensus around China being a strategic rival that the United States must treat as a strategic rival, not just where trade is concerned, but in technological competition too. And he has forced really hard choices on the United States allies about what they're going to do about that. And you can see, like if you take what's happened in Britain this year, the beginning of the year, Boris Johnson was willing to be pretty confrontational with Trump and saying Huawei was going to be in the British 5G um, network. And that position has not lasted through the course of this year. And there's much more pressure on Merkel about China than there was internally within Germany at the beginning of the year as um, well. So I think geopolitically would be hard pushed to say that Trump hasn't made a difference. He has made a difference. And in this respect, the world isn't going back to the way it was when he entered office. I think that's really interesting and pretty convincing to me. And on your first point, it sort of brings us back to where we started, which is, I agree with you, it's still a big if. And if Trump wins, we will discuss this in that context next week. But if he were he to lose, again, with historical hindsight, I'm sure 2020 will look like a pivot year because of the pandemic. I mean, who knows, right? And who knows who the Democratic Party would have nominated, you know, not in the pandemic context. It was just at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's possible, you know, the shape of the year would have been different. But say, it's pretty plausible that absent the pandemic, Trump was possibly on a path to re-election, then the end of the Trump presidency will fold into the story that something happened in 2020 that changed a lot of things, maybe changed the nature of work, you know, had profound sociological and economic effects, but also possibly profound political effects. And if Trump loses, he's not going to be the only politician. It's His is not going to be the only administration that was undone by COVID. So there's that. The other thought I had as you were talking was, if it is true, he's now the most famous human being ever, and he loses, he'll still be the most famous human being ever. And if he has reshaped some fundamental aspects of politics, the focus now is on what a post-defeat Trump does in the period between losing and having to actually vacate the Oval Office. And that's, for a lot of people, to go back to what you said earlier, that's such an emotional and fraught issue. There's been a lot of journalism, I'm sure a lot of people have read it, which is just agonised about the possibility that Trump won't acknowledge his defeat. There hasn't been that much discussion about what a Trump, who is just out, does with his fame. And there will be an interesting test here of whether the fame without the power has much weight it will have some weight. But will people in 2021 say we are in a Biden presidency, be asking Donald Trump what we should do about China and caring what he says, do you think? I mean, do you think he could conceivably have political weight outside of office, given his unbelievable fame? Absolutely, yes. I'm just entirely speculating here, but it won't be at all surprised, put it that way. You know, everywhere he's going, he's looking for a media platform to carry on saying the kinds of things that he says now as president. His attacks on the party establishments as he sees it, I suspect that he will carry on with the energy issue in terms of something that he uses to rhetorically and persistently bash a Biden presidency with. I mean, I think one of the things that's being forgotten in the ways in which many people desperately hope that some national trauma for the United States is going to end next week is that there are plenty of other American citizens who are going to be deeply, deeply upset and angry at the end of a Trump presidency. It's not that everybody who's an American citizen came to loathe Donald Trump. 
quite the contrary. What we saw during the Trump presidency was the way in which Trump's very presence in the White House radicalised liberals, radicalised the Democratic Party and shifted it to the left. And what we are going to have to find out if Trump does lose is what the consequences of Trump losing an election are and having somebody who in Joe Biden may well be pulled to the left by other people in the Democratic Party, because it's far from clear, it seems to me, driving a Biden presidency, what the consequence of that is going to be on the many Americans who really liked having Donald Trump as their president. So we're moving into a great unknown. You could say that we've got a better idea of what a second Donald Trump term of office in the White House is going to be like than we do, I think, of what Joe Biden's first term of office might look like. So in our next regular slot, we will know the result. Well, we might not know the result because we might know that the result is not yet known, but we will at least have a very good idea of how most Americans voted. And we will be talking about the aftermath of the election result this time next week. But we've got a couple of extra episodes for you in our little interlude between now and the day itself, picking up on some of the things that Helen and I were just talking about. We're going to be talking to Roberto Foa about the new report that he's just released, the second one following up on one we discussed on this podcast earlier in the year, about satisfaction with democracy. And this one focuses on young people and their growing dissatisfaction with democracy. But it also touches very interestingly on changing attitudes among the young to populists, including populists of the right, including Donald Trump. And Helen and I are going to be talking to Daniel Jurgen, one of the world's leading experts on energy, oil and geopolitics, about just what is going on in the age of the shale revolution. Do join us for all that over the next week and more. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.